To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Chris, and you're listening to a podcast that believes in dreams, that places trust in the magic of imagination, that is always the first start of the right, and where the light in the window is always on. Join as we discuss the views from Walt's apartment. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special bonus episode of Walt's Apartment Podcast. I am Sean, and I'm joined by Sam. How are you doing tonight, Sam? I'm good. I'm excited for this. Absolutely. We are so excited. Um, a couple, about a month ago, I was looking through Facebook and saw this thing said flyingtinkerbell.org. I'm like, what is this? So I click on this, and it's um, a website dedicated to this amazing lady that we're about to talk to. Her name is Gina Rock. And she is the longest flying Tinkerbell from the Matterhorn that flies over, that flew over Disneyland every night for 20 something years. And we are just so excited to have her. I remember seeing her when I was a kid. I remember seeing every time I go there and I always wondered how high that is. I have so many questions for her about the inside of the Matterhorn because I know there's a basketball hoop and I want to hear about it. And from the notes, I, yeah, Sam knows how excited I am about this. And this is Disneyland. We've talked about Walt Disney World a lot the past couple of weeks, but Disneyland's reopening. We thought this would be a great time to bring the, bring you guys this interview. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce Miss Gina Rock, the longest flying Tinkerbell at Disneyland. How are you doing tonight, Gina? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's so much fun to do these podcasts. I really, really enjoy them. And every time yeah, Joshua calls me up and he's my public relations manager and says, I have a podcast for you. It's just, it's so exciting for me to do. Yeah. Thank you. I absolutely. And what, what actually drew me to, to, to call, to, to reach out was I saw on your Facebook post, you posted a picture on your, from your last flight. If people that don't know Matterhorn is 160 feet tall in the center of Disneyland and Gina took a picture looking back over Disney's California Adventure, which is the back in 2005, and it was from her last flight. And I said, I got to talk to this. I said, I told Sam, I'm going to reach out. Maybe they'll respond. Maybe they won't. And I think Josh responded back within like a couple hours. And I was so excited when he said, you said yes. So I will stop talking because I can talk all day about this. Um, we're just going to dive into your life and how you became – Tinkerbell before that I know you had an amazing life even before you were Tinkerbell I want to talk about your kids I want to talk about what you're doing now you're doing great work now in emergency management but that's what you're doing now yes correct yes okay yes. okay perfect we'll, we'll dive into that at the end perfect so I want to just tell us um, basically what got you excited about being an aerial acrobat I know you're a gymnast, stuff like that, but tell us what got you into aerial flight and doing all that stuff. So the floor is yours. Go ahead. Yeah, I think, I believe the the first time that it popped into my head, I was probably eight or, eight or nine years old, and my brother was doing a lot of gymnastics, and of course, you know, as as a youngest child, and, and he was only a year and a half older than me, we spent a lot of time together. So I saw him doing gymnastics, and I said, I want to try that. So I started learning cartwheels and doing handstands around the house. And I drove my, my parents crazy 
after didn't matter what was in my stomach, I was doing gymnastics in the living room. So I started back with my brother encouraging me and my brother turned out to be accident prone. So he kept getting hurt so he couldn't do gymnastics anymore. But I remember I had these crazy dreams as a child and, you know, do I believe in premonitions or any of that? You know, I, I worked with Many, many psychics, and of course, that's a whole nother story because I was a talent agent. Um, do I believe in that? I don't know. But all I know is I used to have these crazy dreams about tigers. And when I would get up in the middle to, to do that, um, you know, for a bodily function, I would see these tigers on the wall and, and that was, you know, all kids have nightmares. And so I think that it started there. And then the thing with the gymnastics and my brother. And so, so I was doing a ballet. My mother put me in ballet probably at about the age of five or six. I had a neighbor that also we together and, and they, you know, our parents, you know, drove up and the other parent the other day. And um, so I took ballet from about the age of five until I was about probably 11 or 12, a long time. And the gymnastics came into my, my life uh, shortly after that. My best friend out that she was a natural talent at ballet and she ended up at the Juilliard school in New York. And I was very, very jealous and so hard to get as far as she did. And my mother knew that I was pretty depressed about that. And one day she handed me a guitar. So I learned a little bit of guitar and never, never got serious about it. But of course, school back in the seventies, they had uh, gymnastic teams and that was the first year way back in 1973 they implemented in high school and of course about shortly after I think because of liability reasons but I was on one of the first gymnastic teams ever and so I was a tumbler and I was tumbling in my high school and, and practicing for a meet. And in comes Bob Yerkes with his troupe of circus performers. And I'm watching them do teeterboard. And I'm in the background there throwing some flips and getting ready to do a meet. And, uh, yeah, they wanted to meet me. They were watching me work out. And so they approached me. Bob Yerkes approached me. He was... Uh, he has uh, he had a yard full of trapeze equipment and stunt people went there and he was a very famous gentleman in Hollywood. So I met him and it turned out that I lived about a mile from his yard. And so oh, wow. he invited me to work oh, out wow. there. That's how I got started. I really love that. So, my uh, my little I one really is, is five. Um, she 
actually has been doing both ballet and gymnastics since she was about 15 months old, but she's definitely like more inclined to gymnastics. So when you were talking about, you know, after dinner, doing your tumbling and stuff, that is completely relatable because I mean, we have a tumble track in our living room. We have balance beams that we pull out. That is a pretty regular thing here. And I know that my daughter is super inspired by like she's seen a couple of Cirque shows. She has, you know, she watches the US gymnastics. And I have I even have a student who is um a gold medalist for US gymnastics. I'm a kindergarten teacher. And I can tell you that kids are super inspired by that, especially especially gymnasts. Um do you feel like you have had a lot of opportunity to inspire a lot of kids? Well, I certainly think that over my over the years as as I did Tinkerbell and and people found out that I was doing Tinkerbell they were there was always a lot of questions um about you know how did you get started and you know how in the world did you ever end up being an aerialist and and I always said you know gymnastics and ballet now of course I was furious with my mother because you know you when you're growing up and you start getting antsy at 11 and 12 and you're like I don't want to be doing this and it's way too disciplined and I'm not sure I want to do this and of course you know I thanked her profusely after I realized that all of those years and all of that training if I hadn't had that I wouldn't have looked the way I did on the trapeze because I had incredible form. So whatever, um, I was a very careful aerialist. I knew what my boundaries were. And I started out, the, the people that, that I worked with, the Flying Ramos, um, they said, you know, can you try to do some harder tricks rather than just, kind of doing the static, you know, static tricks that, that most of the girls do. do. Would you like to try to throw a double or a one and a half somersault? And so I said, oh, okay, well, we'll give it a try. You know, they put me in a belt and and I tried a one and a half somersault and I ended up getting hurt. <clears throat> I didn't break my neck, but I was in a neck brace for about a week. So I had a very healthy respect for heights and doing doing aerial work. Um, but over the years, people, and especially now, you know, after Belle, I actually have, she's not related to me, but my mother, my dad had passed away in an early age, long story short, we can go back to that, but the gentleman that she lived with, for over 25 years, his daughter's daughter became, was very influenced by my career. And she is now a circus performer. She said she wanted to do it. She got into it and she does it. And she's incredible. So we're not really related, but in some way we are. And so, yes, um, I influenced her and there have been, Many parents that have asked me over the years, Gina, how in the world do we get our children into that? How do we do that? Now, I, I, I don't know if you guys realize this, but sometime about in 2000, 
eight, I happened, that's when a lot of people were opening up circus schools. Now, Bob Yerkes had done that way, way before anybody else. You know, he he had that backyard full of trapeze equipment and stunt people coming over. But er, in the I think it was in the late 90s, all of a sudden, all of these circus schools started opening. And I know in 2008, I finally decided I would like to try that. And I actually did um la gymnastics was looking for a circus director and i opened up a school there and i ran the school for about a year and a half until i decided to go in a different direction so it became a real for a while and and to this day you know circus soleil encouraged um you know as they started taking the animals out circus soleil and the Broadway style with no animals came in. There was more and more interest from people that had been dancers and gymnasts. And, you know, people started getting really interested in circus work. As when I was doing it in the 70s, there's a question that people would ask me all the time. And that's, how did you become a carny? And the reason is because because it's hurtful because a circus performer is an athlete and a carnival is a carnival. So if you look on my LinkedIn page, I have quite a bit on there. My whole life story practically is on there. <laughs> I wrote, I wrote a, an article about it and I debunked the myth of the circus performer versus the carny. And I am the one that tries to educate people that Yes, maybe a carnival will have a circus performance there. Like, you know, I've worked as a trapeze artist at a carnival. But there's a huge difference between carnival and the athletics of being a trapeze artist. And I've had to basically educate everyone on that. And hopefully I've done a good job over the years. And I believe because of Circus Soleil, it has, people have been enlightened to the fact that whoever's doing that, climbing poles and hanging upside down and by their hands and feet and flying around, it's very difficult. And so I believe the circus performer was finally seen in a, in an athletic light, but it took a really long time. and. It was very difficult for me to accept the fact when somebody say, oh, you might, you know, you were in a carnival or you, you know, were doing this or that. And it was still seen as that. And I wrote about how the oddities that were brought into the carnival atmosphere, you know, the bearded lady and, you know, you know, the odd type of people, two headed people, you know, brought into carnivals. and. So that's why the whole relationship happened with the carnival versus the circus. And so that was the beginning of it all. And let's face it, that was how circus was introduced many, many, many years ago. But as Circus Soleil, you know, took, you know, took place, uh, it started helping all of us to be accepted as athletes. That's, that's awesome. Um, 
So you 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 did start in the circus. Um, what's you you said you graduated high school and then ran off and joined the circus. That's what it says in your notes. So tell us a little bit about when you joined the circus. Like what was the first circus you were part of? You were also in Ringling Brothers and Barn and Bailey Circus, and I even heard you mention Circus of the Stars in one of your interviews. So tell us a little bit about your circus career, if you don't mind. Uh, let's. So when I was in Bob Yerke's backyard, he was also. Um, Part of the stunt union, um, screen actor okay. stunt union. So he didn't just come from the, he started with circus, but he became a very, you know, big stunt man in Hollywood. And in the backyard where I was working out, all the stunt people and all the circus people, we were all mixing it up together. You know, we were trying stunts and they were trying circus and, you know, they were doing high falls and we were doing trapeze and we all kind of, you know, shared our, you know, what we, we knew. So one day I'm working out. I was by myself. There was nobody back there. It was during the week. I remember. I think I had just graduated from high school. I was playing around on a low wire. And, of course, a low, not high up. It's pretty much not even two feet off the ground. And I was walking on it, and a gentleman came into the yard and said, Hey, you know, I've been watching you work out a little bit. You know, I'd been working out on a single trapeze. So that's a trapeze where you don't fly. You just do static tricks. And he said, looking for a gal to join my two sons to do an act. Uh, we're looking for a girl that can, I don't know if you've ever seen it. There's a motorcycle and a trapeze that it goes up. They ride a motorcycle on a wire and the, the yep. trapeze is below it. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and Sir Bob Yerkes is the one who was hired to start training everybody for Circus of the Stars. And he did it, I think, for almost 10 years. And so for two years of that, I was involved in helping to train the actors and actresses. Um, so I trained uh, Tony, uh, Tony Fonda and Jane okay. Fonda and several big-name people. Lee Merriweather was there. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis, I taught her how to do aerial ballet. It, it was Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda did the, he rode the motorcycle and I was on the trapeze on the bottom. And oh, wow. so, yeah, oh, wow. that was my time with Circus of the Stars. I was um, in, very involved with training people. So it was, that was a lot of fun. That was very, very early on in the eighties and he continued it for 10 years. So, um, so this gentleman, he, you know, I'm seven, I'm barely 18 years old. I've just graduated high school. And he said, you know, you want to, you know, I also need a girl to pretty much slide down a wire hanging by her neck. Um, from a trolley. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he said, he, you know, proceeds to put up this equipment between two trees and hangs a wire between two trees. And I climb up this ladder and put my head in a neck loop. And, you know, it wasn't very far that I had to go, but I did it. He said, you know, I 
performed it. And he said, well, do you want a job? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, of course, my parents had seen me, you know, continually working out in this yard. I was, I literally lived a mile from Bob Yerke's. So I'd get on my bike and ride up there every weekend and work out. And I was still in high school and then I graduated, of course, but they knew it was coming. My dad was a nuclear physicist for Lockheed Martin. So I came from a household full of education and uh, very literate parents and a lot of culture. My mother was very much into museums and art and opera. And so I came from that world. Um, so my dad was, they had talked about it and they knew it was coming. And so one night I came home and said I was asked to join an act. And they said, well, we're not going to tell you that we're surprised. And I said, well, what do you, you know, what do you want to do? And they said, well, we're we want you to go to college. <laughs> so, um, so my mother went with me to meet the act, and um, I ended up going with the Shrine Circus my first time in the seventies, and I was with the Shrine mm -hmm. Circus only less less than a year, and then I found out that Ringling Brothers was holding auditions about 250 miles from where I was in Texas doing the Shrine Circus. And one of the clowns, um, we became good. I became really good friends. I love clowns. I just, I had an <laughs> affinity for hanging out with people that would make me laugh. And so, uh, so anyway, um, so they, uh, one day I got in the car and we drove the 250 miles and I went and did a Ringling Brothers audition. And because I was already proficient at doing aerial ballet after having learned it in Bob Yerke's backyard, they hired me right away for the bicentennial edition of 1976 and 1977, which was in honor of, and there is a picture of me by the Liberty Bell by my neck. Um, I believe it's on my website, flyingtinkerbell.org you will see it. And I am the clanger underneath the Liberty Bell. And I have my neck under there. So that was this. And that was in 1976 and 77. How did you transition from doing circus work to the Walt Disney Company? Okay, so after Ringling Brothers, I went home for a while. And then I ended up in Las Vegas. And I met someone who the Flying Ramos needed a flyer in Circus Circus. It, Circus Circus was opening in Reno. I was there for the ribbon cutting in 1979. And they hired me for their act. I went to Circus Circus and I worked for them for two and a half years. And when I came home, um, their child, Angela Ramos, she had just, I think, turned 10. And they wanted to bring her into the act. So I'd already been with them for two and a half years. And they said, you know, it looks like now I had already gotten myself into a juggling act and I was doing aerial ballet on the side and I was also seeing. So I was doing multiple jobs at Circus Circus. And they said, well, you know, you've got yourself in a bunch of stuff here, but 
we're not going to need you for the flying act anymore. What would you like to do? And I said, well, that's kind of devastating. But at the same time, you guys have just been amazing. And if you want to see the flying Ramos and all the pictures, it's on flyingtinkerbell.org. I have a circus section. They're all, they're in the pictures. And they live in Las Vegas. They're all retired now. But um, there's pictures. So when I, after I came home from Reno, I had to decide what what do I want to do? And so at the time I had, I had met my future husband probably a few years before that. He had been working out in Bob Yerke's backyard. And I said to him one day, this we were in the dating stage. I said to him one day, I said, I heard that um, Tinkerbell, you know, was taken and for seven years because they were building Fantasyland, but they're going to be putting her back. And I'd like to inquire about that. Do you want to come with me? So I went to Disneyland and I went to Corner. Uh, it was at that time called Card Corner. And I went to the information. And they said, well, it just so happens that in six months, they're planning. Uh, and if you want to inquire, here's the number for talent resources. Just call them up and see if you can send them your resume. And that's what I did. And getting um, an in-person. Now, when you talk about an audition, you're not auditioning for Tinkerbell because they really didn't have the wire up yet. They were just looking for the right person. So I got called up and then I went to uh, Stays, who was in charge of the band, was also the talent, talent resource manager, and he hired all the entertainers. And I went in with, um, was soon to be Richard Rock, and um, he went with me to the meeting. And I had... Uh, a huge portfolio full of circus pictures. Everything I had done at Ringling Brothers and and in Reno at uh, Flying on the Trapeze, I had a multitude of pictures. So, you know, we talked for probably over an hour and a half and he asked Richard a lot of questions because Richard used to fly trapeze with his brother and asked him about the rigging because they hadn't had the rigging up in seven years and asked him if if they did hire me, could he be a consultant? And so that was a good sign. <laughs> so I, all I know is that I went home and I was just waiting for that phone to ring and calling the talent resource center probably about once a week or every two weeks for about two months. And Gina, you know, you'll know something soon. And, you know, we, we can't tell you anything yet and and it, and I came to find out later they already knew that they had hired me for all those two months that I had been called call, that they were doing a check on me at the time not as extensive as Homeland Security that I have now we'll talk about that later but um, but they were doing a background check and they finally called up one day and said we're you're hired. And I went, I was just so excited. That's, that's how it happened. 
<laughs> and I, I had heard there was some. I was pretty excited. So it shows some determination there on your part by by continuing to call. But can can you do do us a favor and walk us through a day of being Tinkerbell, the process of of how it works? What I mean, I know you went there later at night and then started, but can you like kind of start on what your day looked like doing that? Well, the first thing they sent me to do is I had to go to the full on orientation to even be hired at Disneyland. And I don't think a lot of people knew that. You know, I was in a room with 40 or 50 people. I'm writing an autobiography right now, and I just wrote about it. Um, and, you know, I had to go do the orientation and find out about all of the ethics and, you know, what you can and can't Disneyland. And, of course, you know, the men had no beards and short hair. And the women had to dress very conservatively. So I started with that. And I think a lot of people didn't realize that I, you know, I went through like an employee. So when I found out that all I had to do was fly, and I it wasn't like Ringling Brothers when, you know, numbers or do parade so happy from the time i got to the park the hardest part for me was the drive because i lived in agora hills at the time or up in up in the hills there near simi valley at the time and it was about 67 miles um one way and so yeah i do that drive and in the 80s it was pretty easy and i would get to the park and the first thing I would do is go into the room and put my put show makeup on and meet the wardrobe girls there and her tights and a very funny, I think you guys will see the picture on flyingtinkerbell.org. I wore this crazy blue jacket that was like a little overcoat. And I'd put that blue jacket on and I actually put a wig on in that dressing room, which was crazy because they put a scarf over the wig and and it was huge. I mean, it you could tell that I was some kind of character, but I was trying to hide it and would put put that on. I would put, you know, I wouldn't put the harness on yet, but I had an overcoat and I had a pair of tennis shoes on, not my little Tinkerbell pixie dust shoes yet. And me and the crew um, there was a crew of five most of the time. Um, after that, it, it, they trimmed it down to about four. So they would uh, come with me to the Matterhorn, and two guys or three guys would go over to the other side where I landed, and they would get ready to catch me. So I went together with the two gentlemen that w- went up to the top of the Matterhorn with me. And so we would walk over to the Matterhorn. And as you know, the ride, the ride, there's a ride there, right? At the Matterhorn where you enter in and the people are actually standing in line. Here I am, I'm walking up with these two guys and I used to hold the equipment with them so I wouldn't stand out as much. I think I still did. But I would hold some of my equipment, like my wand, and uh, we'd go into the Matterhorn and get into an elevator, and the elevator would go up five flights. And then you'd enter uh, what looked like a giant attic. And and um, 
a, a large wood platform that was like half the size of a basketball court. And then you would have uh, probably four big flights of stairs to climb. And then you would reach a ladder that was on the wall. And that was about seven, seven to, eight, to eight rungs. And you would reach a hatch. And what the, what the guys would do is they would go first and they would swing open this hatch. And there we, we would be on top of the Matterhorn. You had to be an athlete just to get up to the top of the Matterhorn. <laughs> Sounds like... Well, you know, you had to climb a lot of stairs. Yeah, you know, there was there was actually a time, and I don't think it's been in any of my podcasts, and so this is a great place to mention it. At one point, the elevator was down. I actually think it, it happened over the course of 22 years, like three times, but... We had to get through the Matterhorn without the elevator. And there was all these crazy things we had to do. It. And there wasn't a lot of lights in a lot of the area. So that was an adventure all in itself. I would say that it was pretty dangerous and we were very careful. But I have never talked about that before. This is my first time. And... Um, I think that happened two or three times when the elevator didn't work and we had to get through there. So, um, you know, when you once you reach the hatch, um, basically what I tell people is I was the woman who got thrown off the mountain. So <laughs> if you take out the whole Tinkerbell ideal, I was basically, that's what I did. Well, what did you do? Well, I got thrown off the mountain every night. Um, so we get up there and... Uh, it'd be about nine. I flew at nine twenty-five every night, and so we'd get up there by nine o'clock at night. And there was a stool there, and what they would do is they would take the trolley, which was contained in a box that was locked. The trolley was always locked in a box, and the reason for that is because. There, there's brakes that are built into the trolley and they have to be adjusted all the time to the wind. So they mm -hmm. had to make sure that nobody ever touched the trolley because it was a safety issue. So they would unlock the box and get the trolley out. And then they would, um, there was a pair of vice grips that they would put on the wire, place on the wire to make sure that when I got attached to the wire, that I wasn't going anywhere. So those vice grips became a very important role. In fact, not even this week, there was a pair of vice grips that were put on a plaque that were dedicated to my first flight in 1983. And it was backstage in a glass case. And I haven't been, another story, I haven't been back. A fine took a picture of it. But... Long story short, I got a hold of the gentleman um, who used to be one in, in talent resources. He's actually one of the vice presidents of entertainment at Universal Studios. Because I've been trying to figure out where this plaque is on it. A friend of mine took it and he doesn't know where it is. So I got a hold of that gentleman. Um, I'll just mention his name. His name is... Tim Ronco, and um, he's tracking it down to try to, anyway, lure the vice scripts would be 
placed on the wire and I would take my coat off and they would help me put my harness on. The harness um, changed and evolved over the years. My first harness, um, you know, they would have to really hold it for me to get into it. And the harness was on the outside of my, my costume at that time. And I really liked that harness because it kind of made me have a small waist and, and and it was really cute. And the costume was really cute. I really enjoyed that that harness. Um, so they would help me get the harness on. And there was two wires on the back of the harness and the two wires and they would hook it. So you would open up the trolley and they'd take the wires and on the end of the wires was two eye hooks. I guess if you're not a rigger, maybe you wouldn't know what that looks like. But basically, it's two wires, quarter inch, I believe. And the, they place the two eye hooks on the trolley. Close the trolley with pins, uh, tighten them really, really down hard. And I'd be standing on ox getting ready to fly. The vice grips are preventing me from going anywhere. We would get ready for the introduction of, um, there would be an a big announcement that if you wished hard enough, you would see Tinkerbell fly. And I, I don't, we have a copy of the introduction. I just, I just got it not even two weeks ago from one of the people, one of the crew members that was with me in the 80s had, he had a copy of it. And it's actually going to go up on my website pretty soon because we're going to do we're all going to do an interview together. So, um, so they would do an introduction. So here's what would happen: one gentleman would take the vice grips, get ready to the vice grips off the wire, and the other one would stand behind me. They moved the box from out from under me. They would grab my feet. Now, what I had to do, and I understood this as an aerialist, is I had to kiss as stiff as I possibly could because that's what made all the difference in my foot. Because the, whoever the launcher was, it, you know, that would be from two because they'd have to walk all the way to the end of the mountain and push me off. Now, keep in mind, they had some safety harnesses on that were attached in case, God forbid, and it never happened, that they would, you know, fall off the mat or go. That never happened. Um, it was very, very safety conscious. My crew was absolutely incredible. They were very detail-orientated. I always felt safe, no matter what. And I give kudos to those gentlemen that I worked with for many, many years, um, the entire time. But they, they made sure I was safe. They would, uh, so one person, so the guy would take the vice grips off, pull me back, and they'd do like a countdown. So they would announce over the loudspeaker that if you wish hard enough, you'll see Tinkerbell fly. And they'd do like a countdown. And we had people in the park with headsets on that were talking to us. So they would, they would help us count it when I was to fly and that's it was all timed and um like I said we just got a copy of that Joshua talked me into doing this and we just received the comm level to hear what that was like for me up there 
So we're going to And what I would do is I do like a little meditation, Tinkerbell and how she was, you know, the cute little pixie myself. Um, I would kind of just meditate about it a little bit. And then they would push me. And there I would go. The fireworks would start going off. And they were pretty far away from me, although they looked close to anyone else down um, on the street. And there I was. I was would fly. What was your first flight like? What did you feel like when you did your first flight? Terrified. (laughs) Here here I was. I was a circus performer for so many years. And uh, it was kind of like doing my first trap flight. Um, We did it in the day. And uh, 160 feet is high. You know, when you're when you're doing and you're flying at night, you're not really getting the whole gist of how high you are. But when you fly in the day, you really know that you are. So the first time I did it was in the daytime and uh, it was scary. I was health, you know, a healthy scare, just like uh, doing trapeze. So there had to have been times where something might have went wrong. I remember you said on one of your other interviews about a time where you, um, you go from the top of the you go from the top of the mountain down onto a platform where you had your other part of your Tinkerbell team that would catch you with basically a mattress. Can you tell our listeners about the time that you knocked them down because you were coming in way too hot? So as I spoke about before, there's brakes that were adjusted on the trolley. So they the the crew that was with me on the Matterhorn would use a wind reader and they'd hold up the wind reader and figure out if I had a wind or a tailwind, how fast it was going. And according to that, what whatever reading we got off of that wind reader was what we would do with the brakes on the trolley. Now the, the brakes on the trolley were always set to make sure that I flew about 28 seconds. Now, when we would get um, a strong tailwind, we knew that I was going to end up flying faster. So it was up to me as the aerialist. They gave they gave me some, uh, you know, some say in that. You know, do I want to fly really fast or? They wanted to keep it at 28 seconds if we could. Now, what happened was one day there was an 18 mile an hour headwind. So what the guy, the guy who had to adjust the the brakes on the trolley had to do what they call backing it off. So he had to make those brakes pretty loose so that I would fly through the wind. And he backed it off hard enough for me to get across. I think it was like a 30, it ended up to be like a 32 second flight. The only problem is the next day they needed to tighten up those brakes because I didn't have a headwind and they didn't do that. And I came in at about 16 seconds and I knocked the guys down that were holding the mattress on the other end. So that was, uh, I was pretty upset to say the least. Um, I had remembered telling them that that, was an adjustment that probably had to be done it wasn't maybe that was the only time in the 22 years where I didn't really feel that I was safe or I didn't feel that I was being listened to as far as that decision so um 
maybe the only time ever in 22 years that I felt that, you know, that was the wrong call on their part. So. That's scary. I understand that your sister-in-law was your backup, kind of. Did did she ever have to fly for you? So the first couple of years, um, I would start uh, when the kids would get out, when the kids were getting out of school, right around June 9th of every year. Now think back in the 80s, a school would get out June 9th, and it would run through about the 5th to school. So I would start uh, practicing in June, and I would get ready and open every right about June 9th. And I flew, the first couple of years I flew, did all flights, about 90 flights, June through September. And I think it was the end of the second year when they approached me, uh, Stan Fries, who was the gentleman who hired me, um in fact joshua ran into him at a convention <laughs> most recently in a, about three four years ago and um he was uh just he was retired and um anyway where were we give me the placeholder there yes we were talking about your sister-in-law being your backup okay so i apologize it's uh i, I blame it on the Short-term memory loss here, 65 years old. Um, okay, so I was approached by Stan Fries, who had hired me. And what happens if maybe, you know, like you don't get here or, or something happens and you get sick? Don't you think maybe, do you know of any circus performers that might be interested in doing this when you think that you can't or something comes up? And the first person I thought about, um, I was, I had finally married Richard Rock. Um, we'll get into the kids thing, maybe if we have time. But um, anyway, he used to fly trapeze with his brother. His brother threw triple somersaults. He was a catcher. And his brother's wife was perfect for the role because she was an aerialist. She flew trapeze. She was also a gymnasts that just had us. None of us were born in the circus. Um, my ex-husband was not born into it or his brother. They just happened. Brother started flying and then he asked him to, to become a catcher. And so long story short. Uh, so Patty Rock um, said, hey, you know, what do you think about coming in and doing Tinkerbell? You know, they're looking for a secondary, you know, so if something happens to me. And of course, she just was so excited. Um, she came in to talk to Stan Fries and they kind of auditioned her vocally and uh, found out she'd been an aerialist for several years with her husband. She used to fly in the act with him. So um, yeah, Patty came in uh, the third year. She started doing it. I think she did it like once or twice. Um, in a summer, it was very difficult for me to give up. You know, I was kind of holding, holding on real tight with the reins. And um, so she only flew a couple of times in the first couple of years. And then, then they said, Hey, you know, it might be better if she flies a little bit more often because, you know, her not doing it very often, we can't have her practice. So she started doing it, you know, 
back then, you know, in the late eighties, maybe once a week. And, um, in the nineties, about 1994, they decided that she should work a little bit often and we kind of split the time up. So yeah, she came in and she was just perfect for the role. Patty, um, I was, I'm five, four. And I think Patty was like five, five feet or five one. So she was just perfect for the role. And she was so graceful and just like, and so she, she shared the time with me. And um, of course, Joshua took off with me being the longest flying because I really started out doing it and had, didn't have the help until about 85 or 86. But yeah, she came along. Perfect. So let's talk about your family. Um, you've said that you said in a previous interview that um, you were told you couldn't have kids. And you said that you actually got some Disney magic very, you know, like very early on in your career with Disney. So talk about your kids and uh, just about bringing them to the to the park with you. And how, what was their experience with with you being Tinkerbell? Did they think that was the coolest thing ever? Well, actually, I've suggested to. Um, I don't know if my kids would do it. They might, but I'm hoping that we can have them interviewed one time. That's going to be our next one of our next podcasts. If I can get them to approve, they're <laughs> they're a little bit shy, but um. So yeah, I was told I could not get pregnant. I had some problems there when my early twenties, and I was told that the chances of me being able to get pregnant were very very slim. And, um, so I had had some surgery done and they said, yeah, just, you know, don't get it in your head that that's going to happen. And I really, really wanted children really bad. I was around a lot of kids in the dressing room in Reno when I flew trapeze, the flying Ramos were at three kids and I was just, I just knew I wanted kids. So about two weeks after I put that wand in my hand, I found out I was pregnant with Jennifer. Yeah, I was told that if I ever found out I was pregnant to immediately go to the doctor or the hospital and make sure that Jennifer was in the right place, so to speak, um, in the uterus. And, um, and she was. And so not only did I have the most amazing job ever, but I had my wish come true. I, I had was able to have a child, and you know, to this day, it's it it's the pixie magic. You know, it's I feel that Disney helped me out. You know, they didn't just give me a great job, but I had my kids, and I had my son. Uh, they're three years apart, and so here I was. And. The funny thing is, their birthdays are one day apart. So I got pregnant in May, and their birthdays are on February 26th and 27th. And quite literally, after I had my children, I only had six weeks to get back in my costume. So um, I was actually, I became a trainer, athletic trainer. And so I was pretty good at getting myself ready to get into a costume. So back then I had a had my license as a trainer and I was working out quite a bit. So I had literally six weeks between pregnancies and getting the costume back on. So when they turned about five or six, 
they started wanting to go to work with mom. They're like, we want to go. Come on, mom. You know, so that's what I did. I had, I brought a babysitter with me and probably, you know, from an early age on, they went to work with me like three times a week. (laughs) My kids. So they kind of grew up in the park. (laughs) So Lucky kids. Yeah, that's, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it was fun. I, I didn't like leaving my kids at all. I mean, even though I, I left at night, I really didn't like leaving them. And so it was so much fun to be able to bring them to the park. It's great. I, they grew up there. So Now, you did fly the entire, you flew the entirety <laughs> of your pregnancies? No, I actually, because I got pregnant in May, um, well, yeah, yeah, yes, you'd be correct because that was the early stages. So by the time I, you know, stopped around September 5th, I was four months along. And the first time that I got pregnant, I didn't tell anyone. I didn't want anybody to know. I didn't want the crew to know. I didn't tell Disneyland. I was so afraid they weren't going to let me fly. So I kept it to myself, but my mother, for doctors and she came up with me on the Matterhorn because I wanted to keep it a secret and she looked at where the harness was and how I hung and and flew and my mom made the decision on whether she thought I should fly or not now of course my doctor was he's like this is not something that you should be doing pregnant but i said look you know my mother feels that she can make the decision and she works for doctors full-time and so she came with me to work and she decided because it was so early on in the pregnancy that it wouldn't be a problem so she made the decision and i decided to fly so they i was four months along so, yes, I, they flew down the wire with me. My kids have been Tinkerbell a little bit <laughs> in the womb. So, uh, did And any... one of my crew members, I go ahead, sorry. go ahead and ask me that question because it's coming. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, um, did either of your children take after you with gymnastics or acrobatics? Well, but before we get into that, I want to just say this real quick. One of the crew members, towards the end there, he he came up to me. I'll never forget. It was like the last day or that last week I was going to fly. And he just, he whispered in my ear and he goes, Gina, are you pregnant? (laughs) And I hadn't told anyone. But I told him, um, and he knew. So just so you know, the second time I came back and I was pregnant, I got a doctor. So <laughs> they actually knew I was pregnant the second time. And they said, as long as we have a note from your doctor that says you're good to go with this, we're, we're okay. So just so you know, you know, for history, say that's, they, everybody knew the second time. So as far as, no, my children did not. My son happens to be a cameraman for reality shows. 
So he's the guy who goes on the stage and, um, you know, he holds the camera, the, the cam operator for uh, shooting reality shows and some of the big uh, Oscars. And, you know, he does a lot of, he went uh, in, in Korea and he's a cameraman. So he's on the other side of the fence. And then my daughter, she turned out she was doing news in the beginning. She went. To, my son didn't go to college, but my daughter did, and she um, she got into news. She graduated with a degree, um, and she got into news. And she was a news producer for two or three years, and then she got into video editing, and so she became an avid video editor for marketing for for tv and movies she would do editing and and pro and she's still kind of that she's writing for social media and working for um a company but no none of them got into the other side of the fence yeah they had no you know Thank God that <laughs> they didn't get into the, the other part of the show. So they're kind of in it, but from the backside. I was going to ask you to please confirm to everyone that there is a basketball hoop in the Matterhorn. Oh, yeah, there's definitely a basketball hoop. Um, like I said, when you when you exited the elevator that went up five flights, you would mm -hmm. actually be stepping onto the basketball court. So um, there is a story of it. Joshua put up the factual part of why they built that giant attic there with platform there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you can read it on my, on my blog. So okay. it's a story of why they built the basketball court up there. I think, you know, it, it looked like a basketball court. So they figured they just put a hoop up is what happened. And so it ended up that, you know, the, the maintenance guys and, and us, of course, we played basketball before we would go up there to play. And Vladi Divot, very famous basketball player, he was up there. Yeah, he found out that was, that was up there. They took him up there and filmed him up there. And I believe there's been some other very famous basketball players that have been up there because they heard about it. So That's cool. I heard you had a, another request to be added up there to help you pass the time. Oh, yeah, I was, uh, I grew up playing ping pong with my brother and we would play for hours and hours and hours and I got pretty good at it. Um, I think that's why I became a pre pretty decent juggler because I had the motor skills. So one day I said to these guys, you know, we're playing basketball. I said, you know, you guys, my game is really ping pong. And they said, oh, okay, you know, like we're going to put one up here for you. And I'm like, no, no, I understand. I said, I'm just telling you that's my game. And I wasn't a very good basketball player. So um, all of a sudden one day, I don't know, it was a couple of years later, there happened to be one up there. <laughs> and I don't, you know, it wasn't because of me, but I think the, the maintenance guys or somebody decided that they would put one up there and they did. So that was fun. We played ping pong before I fly. That's cool. <laughs> now, you were also a talent agent for Disney as well, right? 
Um, yeah, back in the 80s, I started, um, I wanted to stay home and I didn't want to work um, outside the house. I wanted to stay home and raise my kids. And so, but I also wanted something that I could do as well while raising my kids. So a good friend of mine was a talent agent. And I, I got into my head, I thought, you know what? I went to Bob Yerke's and I talked to him because he booked a lot of, he wasn't just a stuntman and teaching people circus. He was a talent agent. And I said, how do I get in to be a talent agent? He said, well, Gina, you know, you're a natural. Just, you know, call up some variety entertainers and circus performers. They want you, you know, See if you can get them some gigs. So I started out with small parties and I looking clowns and magicians. And then, you know, parties and stuff. But then somebody at Disney heard about it. And they called me up and they said, Gina, we're looking for some variety performers. Can you help us? And I said, well, what do you need? And so... There was various times when they needed variety performers at uh, either, you know, some kind of event they were having, a private event um, or, you know, some kind of street event. And so I was hiring variety performers for And one of the biggest ones I did was for the opening of Indiana Jones. I hired fire eaters and still walkers, swallowers and little people and globe walkers. And it was a that I did. And um, a couple other ones, one with Robin Williams. Uh, I hired uh, 30 variety entertainers for the opening of Aladdin. And uh, then when they purchased the Queen Mary, they had the Queen Mary underneath the umbrella of Disney for two years. Uh, I started booking a lot of talent for the ship. And that continued even after Disney sold it. Um, I continued with the fantastic relationship with the special events manager there, John Adamson. And I continued to book talent uh, for the ship. So yeah, I, I booked talent for Disney, the for the park and for special events for about 12 years. And then they decided to start doing it in-house. So, you know, I still did a few gigs here and there, but um, yeah, for many, many years I did it. And it was it was really great to have two two things that I did for Disney, you know, because I only worked 28 seconds. So my mom looked at it. She said, you know, Gina, you realize that you only work like 12 minutes a year. <laughs> so, so it helped uh, fill in my time. And I had the talent agency and I worked out of my house and I booked out from my house. So teleworking was with, I was doing that way back in 19... I started in 1987. I opened it, and I always worked from my house, raised my kids. Awesome. So let's talk about um, what. When did you decide that um, it was time to stop flying? Uh, what were the circumstances that led up to you you being done being Tinkerbell? Well, it all kind of worked out itself. You know, every year. You know, it's funny because I used to have to call up. 
early before in January because Tinkerbell started flying earlier and earlier. Like I start, used to start in June and it started backing up all the way to starting to do weekends all the way in January. We started to become, you know, doing it more and more often. So um, when we when I hit about my I think it was like my 19th year. They said, you know what, we, Gina, is there any way that you could train three more girls how to do this? And I said, sure, no problem. You know, they, they, we went backstage and they had an area in one of the hangars where they hung the, the three, three new girls that were going to, you know, do it. And I didn't know that they were getting ready to change the show. But, you know, I went ahead and trained everybody and and they went up and, and learned how to do it. And they they did, you know, they had their days, too, when they flew. And the, the, like the 20th year, 21st year, there was rumors that they were going to go ahead and finally change the show where the wire was not a straight shot. They wanted to finally bring the technology in and, you know, make it. You know, make it fun, you know, make it so that she flies around, you know, up and back and not just a straight shot. And so they finally got themselves into the 21st century there. And um, they came to me and they said, look, you know, it's one of the reasons we had you train these girls is because we're going to be changing the show. And do you think this is something you want to continue? And I the first thing I said was absolutely not. I said, this has been the greatest 21 and a half years ever. This is, I was in college. Uh, it's like 2005. And I was uh, taking physical geography and I had an affinity for it. And I had been about um, possibly working um with FEMA and um so I said no I said I want to retire with being you know I did it for so long I have no interest in, in continuing and I said I think I know what I want to do with my career and um so I turned it down okay so, so that's how your... I ended up in my next job <laughs> and, and I was going to ask what is it you're actually doing now can you kind of explain for our listeners what it is you do now so in in uh, when I was going to college, I I found that physical geography ended up to be something that I was totally enamored with. Keeping in mind, remember I had done Ringling Brothers, and I had traveled all the way the whole East Coast, and I had traveled almost every state. I'd I'd traveled to every state with the red unit when I was at Ringling Brothers. So I think geography was something I was always interested in because I, I did a lot of traveling. And so I met someone who was inspecting homes when they got, uh, you know, whether it was a rain event or a hurricane or a flood or a tornado, he worked for an engineering firm that had a contract with FEMA. And he said, hey, Gina, I understand that uh, you're going to retire soon. Do you think you'd be interested in learning this? And I said, are you kidding? 
that's and he said do you do you want to travel and now my kids are older now and i'm thinking yeah you know my kids are you know on their own and it was perfect it's like it was just i did a lot of my mother was into charity and my mother did a lot of charity and i was a candy striper growing up and i was worked in a hotline and i was it was always about helping others and I did a lot of volunteer work. And so this was perfect for me. So not only was I going to be able to travel, but I was going to learn how to, to help people when their houses got flooded. And so I, it's, it was called individual assistance. So when there was a disaster declaration declared by the president, um, I would be called out. Um, and I would be deployed just like the military to, uh, you know, wherever, you know, they needed help. And I started at Hurricane Katrina and, uh, yeah, I went to school to learn how to do it, you know, with the engineering firm. And basically I only had a couple of weeks training and they, that was it. And, you know, I, I was in individual assistance, uh, with Parsons Brinkerhoff for 11.6 years. And then I decided to make the switch. And now I, I, I work for public assistance. And that's when you, you don't go into individual housing for city, state, and local and nonprofits. And you actually, you know, you help them get the grants, the road. You know, if hospitals and schools were damaged or city halls and fire stations, I write the grants and help them get the money. So I work for Jacobs Engineering, and they've had the contract with FEMA uh, coming up on their five years. Longer than that, um, I started with them in 2017. So now I'm doing something um I'm not working, you know, directly with individuals. I'm working with, you know, people that run, you know, fire stations and city halls and, you know, local, state and tribal. And it's it's great. I love it. I love my job. Jacobs Engineering is a fabulous company to work for. Um, cultures, they have 55,000 people that work there from over the world. So the greatest part about that is that when I was at Ringling Brothers, as you know, I was for cultures from all over the world. I mean, people from all different countries. And I'm working for Jacobs Engineering, and I work with people from all over the world. So it's really fun to, in the second half of my life, I've now traveled to 38 states in 15 years. And of course, I'm working remote because we're in the COVID world now. Back in last March, um, they told me that I needed to work remotely. And some of us are now traveling again, but um, I'm working remotely right now on a job. That is awesome. Um, you've so, had quite, quite a change. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You've had quite the career. Just, um, so I... I want I want to thank you so much for 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 being being with us this last hour. It's been absolutely amazing, and thank you for taking the time. I know that's your day off, and you work hard every day. So, 
to take time to spend an hour and a half with us. I really, really appreciate it. Can you tell our listeners real quick where they can find all the information about you? Yes, if you go to flyingtinkerbell.org, that's O-R-G, um, you will see my my webpage up there. And just know that when you do buy an autograph or a pin, um, Joshua Schaefer is my public relations manager. And he put up that website, and he has just now put up a Facebook fan page for me, and it got a huge response. Yep. So make sure that you visit the fan page too. But but my website, you you can get to the fan page from my website at flyingtinkerbell.org. And all of the proceeds where if you buy an autograph, you're going to get a receipt from Make-A-Wish Foundation. Because awesome. I donate all of the proceeds to Make-A-Wish Foundation and USO. So... That's, that's Sam, why I put it up there. <laughs> well, thank you for, for spending this time with us today. You have a very beautiful heart and you have a lovely story. And I'm so glad that we got to hear it today. Yeah. And thank you guys. I mean, I know that it went a long time. Sorry about that. I, I never oh, know cool. exactly how to run these, but um, <laughs> you guys are great. I mean, and thank you for letting me share. Um, it's... It's amazing to do this. I never, I'm the kind of person that likes to be behind the scenes. It's mm -hmm. one of the reasons I became an aerialist because everybody said, why don't you be an actress? And I would want, I like being on the other side, you know, on the back side. And so um, this is wonderful to do these podcasts. And thank you so much. It's, it's a part of my history now. And and you guys made that happen. Thank you so much. It was Absolutely. Our pleasure, yeah. I have I, I have one more request for you, Gina, if you don't mind. That's fine. Okay, so Sam's five year old daughter, Haley, believed that we were not gonna be interviewing Tinkerbell today. So could you do me a favor and give <laughs> Haley a shout out and say hello Haley from Tinkerbell? <laughs> hey Haley, um I understand that there's is this the one that likes the gymnastics in yes, the ballet? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Haley, I'm just gonna give you a little bit of heads up here. Keep up with your ballet and your gymnastics, and Circus Soleil is out there looking for people like you. When you turn, you know, sorry, mom, but you know, when you turn, you know. 15, 16, and you decide that you want to go out and be an aerialist, just remember that I'm going to go ahead and encourage you. Now, hopefully mom won't get upset with me, but remember mom, I went to college late so she can still go to college and be an aerialist. But yeah, Haley, um, they did interview Tinkerbell today, and I was very, very blessed to get that job. I, I hope that you follow your heart and your dreams, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to be when you grow up, you can do that. Just remember that. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for listening this week. And we hope you enjoy the view from Walt's apartment. Good night.
You are now listening to a member of the Disney Podcast family. Head over to Disney Podcast family on Instagram to see all the latest posts for this show and links to other great Disney podcasts.